Welcome to your daily affirmations. Repeat after me, working with others is easier than ever. I strive for perfect collaboration. Our teamwork keeps getting better. Yeah, affirmations are great, but Monday.com can really get you the teamwork you desire. Work together easily and share files, updates, data, and just about anything you want all in one platform. Affirm yes to start. Or tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network, and I'd like to tell you that we have a new and improved website. It has two new features that we think you'll love. One of them is a vastly improved search engine so that when you type in keywords, you'll get a bunch of episodes really quick. The other is the ability to create a listener account. And in that listener account, you can save episodes for later listening. So you can create a kind of listening list. We think these features are neat and we think you'll enjoy them. Please visit the site today. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everybody, and welcome to New Books in Latin American Studies, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Claudia Monterrosa Rivera, the host of today's episode. And today we'll be talking to Dr. Sarah Walsh about her new book, The Religion of Life, Eugenics, Race, and Catholicism in Chile, published by the University of Pittsburgh Press in 2021 and which examines the interconnections and relationship between Catholicism and eugenics in early 20th century Chile. Uh, Dr. Walsh is the Hansen Lecturer in Global History at the University of Melbourne, and she specializes in the history of human sciences in Latin America with an emphasis on race and ethnicity. She received her PhD from the University of Maryland College Park, and um, Sarah, uh, welcome to the show. Thanks so much um, for being here. Thank you so much, Claudia. And I, I do need to maybe apologize to your listeners that though I um, am affiliated with the University of Melbourne, I am American. So you won't get to enjoy um, a whimsical Australian accent today, unfortunately. Oh, uh, wow. Well, um, thanks uh, for sharing that. And uh, I wonder if we um, could begin this interview uh, with you telling us a little bit about um yourself and um, just getting us started that's that way. Sure. Um, so I, as I said, uh, I'm not Australian, but American. Um, and I grew up in New England, specifically in Amherst, Massachusetts. Um, and many people do ask me if that means that my parents were professors and they were not. Um, they both did attend the University of Massachusetts in Amherst and then remained there. Um And uh, in many ways, I think my time in New England, I stayed there until my early to mid-20s, has shaped me in kind of unusual ways, uh, as many of us are shaped by where we grew up. But particularly as relates to this book, um, my family, uh, particularly my grandparents, and beyond were Catholic and, and Catholicism plays a really important kind of social and cultural role in new England. Um, and so that I think kind of has brought some questions to me intellectually that I didn't know that I wanted to answer, I suppose, um, until I got to graduate school and, um, as, and you mentioned that I went to the University of Maryland, and I know that we're going to talk about that a bit later. Um, but I, 
ultimately, I have enjoyed history and wanted to look back at the past to help us understand the present more or less since the time I can remember. And I think, again, this kind of speaks to where I grew up. Um, New England is just full of different kind of plaques and memorials and uh, burial sites and uh places where, and historical homes and historical museums, all dedicated to varying moments in time. And so I guess in a sense, uh, history was always all around me. And I always found it really intriguing. But in fact, I kind of grew tired of American history pretty quickly because of that, because it was built into so much of my kind of growing up experience. So um, as I grew into my more kind of intellectual pursuits, Latin American history became the way that I wanted to consider kind of big issues like uh, racism or uh, the power of science or the power of religious belief and faith. Um, and I should also say, I think this is important. I don't have any um, Latin American family connections or Latino heritage. Um, I am not speaking from that particular position, um, which I, I, I guess as well was part of what I think was important and is always important um, in the context of doing Latin American history is that I recognize that as a white woman um, coming from the United States, that my position relative to my material uh, is different, but I do try and avoid looking at it from kind of a imperial perspective. I take it very seriously um, to try and put my research kind of into and put myself into um you know, the Chilean context that I interact with, both in terms of uh, my own research trips in the present, um, but also in the context of the historical work that I do. So um, when we get to it, I, if you want, I can talk more about it. But I really worked very hard to not make the United States a meaningful kind of component of my book in any capacity, and certainly not um, kind of American uh, eugenic philosophies or characters or historical agents. I really wanted this to be a book to be about um, Chilean intellectuals and Chilean concerns. Um, but that's maybe enough for me from me for now. Uh, well, um, thank you uh, for sharing that. Um, fascinating. I, I like how um, you're um, very um, uh, just conscious of, of this uh the way in which you frame your narrative and your historical perspective. But I, I wanted to ask you uh, more about how you um, came to to write about this topic. What is it that um, ultimately um, drew you to study um, the intersections of uh, Catholicism or, and I'm um, sorry, eugenics and, and Chile and perhaps why Chile in particular? Mm -hmm. Yeah, so um, this book, probably like many first books, is based on my dissertation that I did, which was also about eugenics and Catholicism in Chile. Um, and the way kind of intellectually I came to this was first through the, the the kind of more thematic interest in the interactions between Catholicism and eugenics in Latin America. Um, I had already decided uh, 
prior to coming to graduate school that I wanted to pursue Latin American history, which I already had specialized in in undergraduate school or an undergraduate actually. Um, and the reason why I chose that particular interaction was because I, I, I began being interested in the history of science. Um, and what I d- discovered quite quickly when you read anything about the history of science at that time, which I'm sorry to age myself, was kind of the mid-2000s, um, Latin America was a region that was portrayed as at best a place where scientific ideas um, from elsewhere, the kind of argument was we can discuss how well or not well they've been adapted or implemented. And it wasn't really about um, Latin American people themselves having scientific ideas, generating scientific ideas, um, and so that really was striking to me. And in particular, a lot of the arguments were very much tied up with the idea that Latin America as a region is predominantly Catholic and correspond and then a kind of corollary assumption that Catholicism um, as a religious belief is antithetical to scientific develop- development because it hinders um, kind of originality and innovation that is required of science. Um, There's a lot of reasons this belief in both of these things persists uh, beyond the early 2000s. Um, But that was really striking to me quite immediately. And so I wanted to investigate if that were really true. And in particular, I had already done some reading about eugenics in Latin America and a number of different locations. And it was clear to me that eugenics was really, really popular, um, much as it was all over the world in any number of different types of communities, religious or otherwise. And so, and and from the history of science and history of eugenics side, most of the literature coming out of that at the time was saying that Catholicism in particular was especially hostile to eugenics. And so to me, that seemed to be incongruous with what I had already been kind of figuring out. So the first thing that I wanted to better understand was the relationship between eugenics and Catholicism as a way to kind of more tar- have a more targeted vision of this interaction between Catholicism and science, broadly speaking. So that was the first kind of set of questions that I wanted to ask. In terms of deciding where I wanted to place that in the Latin American context, um, I had a, my first advisor, I had two advisors over my graduate school days, uh, Barbara Weinstein and uh, Karen Rosenblatt. And Barbara was my first advisor. And she and I spoke about where I might place this research. And, um, you know, she, I think one of the things that maybe doesn't get discussed as much in the context of intellectual pursuits, but is really valuable is practical advice. Um, And Barbara was eminently practical. And she said, in addition to thinking about what countries make sense, because in term, you know, in terms of like, you know, there are major pockets within Latin American studies that relate to Mexico, Cuba, Brazil, uh, Argentina. These are kind of the big ticket places that a lot of people spend their time doing research. Um, and so, 
Chile has become more part of that over the recent years. Um, And so she mentioned some places and said, you know, that's one thing to consider is you want to make sure that your book actually has impact to a broad spectrum of people. And if you choose a relatively small place, it's just not going to have that same impact. And then as well, and this is where the real kind of practicality comes in. She was like, and you should also think very strongly about a place that you would like to live for six months, because that's the minimum amount of time you will spend doing archival research in these places. Um, So between those two things, I kind of pondered it for a bit. And I was fortunate enough to have some preliminary research money that the University of Maryland provided. So I used that to go to Chile to do preliminary research because I had the feeling that it would be a good fit, um, but I wasn't entirely sure. So I wanted, and part of the reason I thought that is because it had some of the older and most prestigious universities uh, in Latin America, broadly speaking. Um, And I wanted, and I felt like that would provide information as well as a kind of more robust scientific community than some other places. Um, And so I did this preliminary research and it turned out to be, uh, I found material and that seemed like a good enough reason to continue forward. What I would say now after having, because that was so many years ago, I actually don't even fully remember when it was. Um, When I think about Chile now in the context of this book, I think it could be written perhaps in almost any place, but I think Chile offers some unique opportunities to think about certain kind of issues to do with race and white supremacy uh, that are not unique to Chile, but get manifested in particular ways in Chile that I think are kind of really illustrative. And so as time has gone on, um, I've felt even more kind of committed to the idea of um, this book placing itself in the Chilean context, um, which again, I can talk a bit more about if you like. Yeah, absolutely. Wow. Um, That's a fascinating story. Thank you um, for for sharing that. And uh, I uh, would like to ask you about, um, more specifically about um, one of the main themes that you um, discuss in your book, which is just how um, eugenic science and Catholicism kind of, uh, you say, reckoned uh, with, with one another. And you mentioned that you, um, in order to examine this, you treat them both as, as kind of ideologies and intellectual um, frameworks that were um, interacting. Um, but I uh, would like to ask you to talk a little more about how you um, see them intersecting more strongly in terms of the um, threats that they identified um, to this concept that you bring up, which is the the raza chilena. And I'd like to um, ask you to talk a little little more about that. Sure, sure. Mm -hmm. Um, So yes, in terms of kind of concrete threats to la raza chilena, um, and these are, I mean, they kind of build up over time, but we really start to see an accumulation um, of debates and discussions about about this, starting more or less at the turn of the 20th century, and then carrying um, kind of till just before 1950. And the threats, again, this is why 
you know, we choose places that are on the one hand unique, but also kind of um, illuminating for for more places than, you know, so this book isn't, um, this book is bound by Chilean realities, but I think is also useful to anyone who wants to understand this moment in time uh, in terms of eugenic thought in particular um, in Latin America. But in terms of concrete threats that were identified as problems, both by Catholics and by secular reformers in this period, were um, often uh, gender-defined um, and bifurcated by gender, which is, you know, the other component of the book. So if we were talking about the threats that Chilean men present to la raza chilena, the primary concern amongst most people um, who identified themselves as eugenicists uh, was alcoholism, without a doubt. There is a strong belief that men simply cannot control the amount of alcohol that they consume. And this is a problem, eugenically speaking, not only because it damages the physical body of the man who is drinking too much, um, which of course has any number of potentially eugenic related problems, but perhaps the most concerning is that perhaps he is damaging his actual ability to reproduce by too much drinking. So that's a major concern. Another concern related to that is that a man will privilege the amount of money he saves or dedicates to drinking um, and does not use that money to do the things that should be done to have a eugenic household. Perhaps there is no home that is bought. Perhaps the home is not adequate to the amount of people that are living in it. Perhaps he, because this is the other presumption, he's the sole breadwinner for the family. Um, so perhaps there is no bread <laughs> uh, at the house because he doesn't, he's spent most of his money on drink rather than providing for his family. Um, these are some of the main concrete concerns. And again, this speaks to kind of the ideological um correlation and correspondence between Catholicism and eugenic thought, because, of course, Catholicism similarly, Catholic priests for quite a long time, in fact, uh, long before eugenics came along, were trying to encourage men to drink less and to participate in family life more. Um, so that's kind of for men, the main concern is of that persuasion for the most part. For women, the uh, most pressing threat to La Raza Chilena is all bound up in reproduction. So how many children are women having and what quality of children are they having? Um, and this second thing is actually, off, I would say, maybe even more important than the first. Um, the And the quality is um, how we measure that varies quite a lot across the eugenic community in Chile. Um, but the overall belief is that we want to be producing children who um, are physically fit, who are a certain amount of mentally capable, and who effectively, uh, in kind of any, any way you might measure this, could be read as white. Um, 
and we can talk more about what I mean by that. Um, but the, the kind of onus on women to do the vast majority of work related to the integrity and maintenance of the physical health of La Raza Chilena is um, profoundly based on reproductive issues that, um, and that, that kind of, so whereas men are being encouraged to use their time wisely and use their money effectively, women are being encouraged to pick men who are better and, and, or demand better hate behavior from men. Um, so we see again, and this is again, where Catholic and secular reformers can find agreement. We see a lot of discussion um, across this period of time about trying to address the sexual double standard, which is to say that men seemingly are allowed to have sex with whoever they want, but women need to maintain, um, you know, premarital sexual purity. And after that, they need to, need to maintain marital sexual fidelity. Um, there's a lot of effort to try and encourage men to do the same. And now it isn't simply kind of a moral good to do that. It, it actually gives a physical benefit in the improvement um, and continued health of La Raza Chilena. So they're extremely gendered um, kind of threats, but the overall concern is to me a much less obvious and clear kind of fear about degeneration of La Raza Chilena. And it, and it's not always entirely clear what that means, but it manifests in these much more clear directives about men, um, controlling their alcohol consumption and women, um, creating kind of the perfect conditions in which to have as many children as they possibly can. Wow. Um, that's, that's fantastic. And, uh, you, uh, mentioned, uh, the intersection of those, um, kind of ideas with a concept of, of whiteness. So, um, if you could um, expand on that as, as you were making a connection there, I would love to hear more about that. Sure. Um, so this is um, an aspect of the book that wasn't in my dissertation because it actually took me kind of a long time to think this through and to also have kind of the proper language to really discuss it. Um, and part of the difficulty in arriving at the kind of realization that what was happening here had to do with the construction of a white identity in Chile was because, and this is, I think, one of my larger contributions to the field, I hope, um, because white identity in Latin America is something that a lot of people don't really want to see in quite the same way that it exists in places like the United States um, or Australia or the United Kingdom. Uh, even though anyone who is from Latin America could tell you that they know white people who are from there, <laughs> um, there's, there's so much emphasis on the idea that the region is racially and ethnically diverse and on top of that is not racist. Um, it makes it really quite difficult to talk about racial identity in those spaces, especially when that identity is white. Um, 
because, I mean, this is kind of the nature of white racial identity in most places. Um, it, it has been treated as basically invisible. So while there's been kind of a renaissance uh, or there started to be a renaissance talking about kind of um, Afro-Latino communities and Afro-Latin Americans, that started really uh, seeing a lot of interest, at least amongst historians, kind of at the turn uh, of the 21st century. Um, there, and there was always, of course, an awareness and interest in indigenous cultures and societies in Latin America. Um, but the idea that white people were there and were correspondingly kind of constructing narratives <laughs> about themselves has taken kind of a while to gel, I would say. Um, and I, you know, so to me, I think it's really important to tell those stories um, because one, it does another thing that I think is really important, which is break down the supposed kind of massive barrier between Latin America and the rest of the Americas, which is to say, particularly the United States, but also other nations that we might characterize as white majority. Um these nations, like anywhere in the Americas, shares a lot more in common than what distinguishes them. Um, and white supremacy exists in all spaces because that is how um, these nations were originally originally organized around that as a foundational principle. And that's true anywhere that you choose, right? Um, so what I started to notice when I looked at my materials and what people were really, what Chileans were saying about what they thought they were doing. Um, it was very much about creating a a racially homogenous population that was essential. You see that over and over again in across the board. And when I, I'm like, okay, so what, what did racially homogenous mean to these indiv individuals and what they we're talking about was, you know, a homogenous form of mestizaje, a homogenous group of mestizos, um, and that that homogeneity created a racial superiority over um, other countries that were their neighbors or were of similar kind of to their mind level. So often you see uh, this notion of racial homogeneity functioning as racial superiority used against particularly um, Peru and Bolivia, which are often described as indigenous countries, whereas Chile is not. Um, in the context of a comparison with Brazil, the issue there is that that is primarily an Afro-descended population. Um, and so Chile is different and better than both. And so, you know, one might say, well, racial homogeneity isn't necessarily whiteness, Sarah. And I, to that, I would say, well, they sure are talking about people who aren't white and how they're better than them. So that to me suggests that this is about being white. Um, and I'll also say quite often, um, Latin Americanists say, well, don't you mean whitened or whitening? Because especially like in the Brazilian case, you have the program of embrancamento. And that is not what I'm saying. I'm very pointedly not saying that. Um, because 
the literature, like, so by the time we get to the turn of the 20th century, what people in Chile are arguing is that they have been whitened. They are not in a process of doing that. The Effectively, the mestizaje time has finished. And in fact, it finished about 100 years before the 20th century began, because most every, like when you look at these books, um, the one, La Raza Chilena is one of the most emblematic by Nicolás Palacios, but there are others um, that are of similar kind of time period and gravitas, I guess you could say, where they all place the racially mixed period of Chilean history to actually predate Chile entirely, to have it be in the colonial era. And then as soon as we hit the early 1800s and um, the independence national period, effectively mestizaje is already over. Um, So in that sense, I feel very strongly that this isn't about a project of whitening. Uh, This is about uh, firming up and establishing as uh, kind of like uh, strongly as possible a version of whiteness that also allows for a history of mestizaje to exist alongside it. Um, And just as a final wrap up, part of what made me start thinking about this is that there was... um, a survey done in 2007, I want to say, um, by some sociologists, some Chilean sociologists that asked people to identify themselves racially. Um, And most Chileans, the vast majority, chose um, a box that in English uh, translated to uh, predominantly white mestizo. And that phrase like really stuck with me for a long time. I was like, what does a predominantly white mestizo mean? Um, And so basically uh, what I, that was kind of probably the starting point for me to really dig into um, these kind of issues of racial identity and naming um, in a way that I hadn't really thought about before. And, And so I should have probably started with that and then gone back to what I started this answer with. Well, no, um, fascinating. Thank you um, for for speaking of that. And you um, were kind of uh, talking, uh, signaling to this idea of uh, uh, of the process of mestizaje being over and um, the debates about um, eugenics and how to apply eugenic science were mostly about kind of uplifting the raza chilena, right? But uh, you also, um, in chapter two, especially the first part of the book, you talk about how... Um, secular um, eugenicists, uh, as you call them, um, saw um, just the church or Catholicism as kind of a separate, um, almost category here. But um, in contrast, uh, Catholic intellectuals or um, Catholics who um, had an affinity for eugenic science tried to craft an intellectual um, space for them in these debates because they saw it as crucial. Their participation is crucial in the construction or uplifting of of the raza chilena. So I wonder if you could tell us a little more about that. Sure. Um, So they not only thought that their involvement in the uplifting of la raza chilena was crucial, it was also a much broader feeling that eugenics without Catholic intervention would go horribly wrong. Um, That 
Catholicism would provide the moral compass that was so obviously necessary to something like eugenics. Um, And in that sense, I think it's kind of surprising that that line of reasoning wasn't more common in other places, because we certainly know that eugenics did very much need quite a lot of ethical intervention. Now, I'm not sure that the Catholic Church was really the right institution to offer that. Um, But I think it's an interesting kind of place to start that they felt very strongly that eugenics offered a lot of good benefits. Um, Particularly, it kind of mirrored what they were trying to do, which was to tell people how to live a good life, right? Um, In very concrete terms. And but there was a concern that eugenics without any sort of moral or ethical code would be kind of leading people down a dangerous path. Um, And there were lots and Catholics disagreed about what the dangers were. um, But they still agreed that Catholicism should be there uh, to prevent that. But in terms of how they kind of spoke to this, a lot of the arguments that I started to see coming out of um, Catholic writing of this period uh, was about building on older traditions of scientific development and discovery in which Catholic um typically like kind of clerical figures, people who were um, monks, right, and in different orders, um, how they had played a fundamental role in the foundation of a variety of different sciences in the early modern period, Um, particularly things like astronomy and botany. Um, And so the idea was here that uh, what Catholics in Chile were trying to argue, and I don't think this was unique to Chile, um, was that the effort of some members of the eugenic community to try and purposefully keep them out of the discussion and out of the debate was actually a perversion um, of a much longer standing reality about how science and religion always tend to function together. And in fact, when they function together, they both function better because um, ultimately what both are about is the revelation of truth and the revelation of how the world works and offering you guides to then how, how to navigate that, right? Um, so that's that was really, I think, kind of the fundamental uh, purpose of a lot of this Catholic writing was to show that there was a much longer tradition of science and religion functioning together and that um, this kind of more recent, and to their mind, starting at the beginning of the 20th century, this more recent kind of appeal to science as the only thing a person needed uh, was um, an aberration and would result in poor outcomes because it wouldn't be um, as fully realized as what had preceded it. And that to keep Catholics out um, was an arbitrary decision that they, that they resented. I mean, <laughs> they resented it. Um, and so the effort was to try and convince um, people that, or convince secularists, I guess, um, that they deserved as much kind of space at the table 
as anyone else. And that, and most importantly, that they were not wanting to be there to be obstructionist. That in fact, and this is quite often also language in these articles, especially about eugenics, is that they repeatedly say how much they are eager for these improvements and how they want to help, um, but that they're not being permitted entry into these various kind of debates or public spaces and that they want to be included. Um, so that's really, to me, kind of the issue here is that it's um, try- they're trying to uh, maintain or really create a new space for themselves in uh, these more public debates about um, ultimately, I guess, public health in a sense, even though it's misplaced. I don't know about you, but I'm very busy and I don't have a lot of time to cook. That's why I subscribe to Factor. Eating better is easy with Factor's delicious, ready-to-eat meals. Every fresh, never-frozen meal is chef-crafted, dietitian-approved, and ready to go in just two minutes. You'll have over 35 different options to choose from every week, including Calorie Smart, Protein Plus, and Keto. These are two-minute meals. Factor meals are ready to eat in heat, so there's no prepping, cooking, or cleanup needed. They're flexible for your schedule. Get as much or as little as you need by choosing your meals every week. Factor is the perfect solution if you're looking for fast premium options with no cooking required. Sign up and save. We've done the math, and this is important. Factor is less expensive than takeout, and every meal is dietitian approved to be nutritious and delicious. Head to factormeals.com nbn50 and use code nbn50 to get 50% off. That's code nbn50 at factormeals.com slash nbn50 to get 50 percent off yeah um well and kind of uh, building off that uh, a, a point that you made uh, about just them trying to um participate in these public debates uh there are also two other themes that i um kind of see as interconnected here um you uh speak of how the the, Ch- the chilean example um kind of speaks to uh how latin american uh, forms of racialized or racial thought were distinct, right? However, you um, also uh, discuss the, uh, this idea of a Catholic uh, eugenicist intervening in these debates through um, an identified imprecision in uh, the relationship between um, heredity and um, the environment. So it's sort of through... Um, this lack of consensus, uh, which also connects to um, how uh, eugenics at a transnational, international level function, right? That's how, where they saw um, a space where um, they they entered it. Um, could you please uh, tell us a, a little more about this? I find this um, fascinating, just the many facets of this process and how it manifested um, within the, the Chilean case specifically. Sure. Um, Yeah. So I think that's one of the other things that to me was really important to capture. Um, And I, and I maybe I imply it in a sense, and I do talk about kind of the transnational connections in varying parts of the book. Um, But it's really important to, to remember in any study of eugenics that, um, up until the 1930s, it's really unclear to pretty much anyone involved how heredity actually works. Um, and even now, we still don't really understand many of the aspects of how 
different traits are inherited. In fact, the more we learn, it the kind of the less clear most of these traits and how they pass from parent to child become. Um, so that's, I think, an imp- that's kind of, um, how would I say it? Like, a rem- it's a reminder to those of us in the present, because even historians sometimes suffer from a bit of presentism or kind of an imprecision about understanding um, what did people know at what time and what kind of constitutes um, a good faith effort at that time of really trying to understand what was available as information at any given moment in time. And it's certainly true that I think broadly speaking, eugenics benefited from the fact that people didn't really understand how heredity worked. They just simply couldn't understand it um, because there wasn't any meaningful information for quite a while. And even when we get to the modern synthesis in the 1930s, which combines kind of um, ideas about genetics with Darwinian theory, that's not as though all of a sudden now we understand everything. It's just that the science can now begin the kind of much more what we might call legitimate science can meaningfully begin. So for the period that I'm talking about, which is more or less the first half of the 20th century, um, we're dealing with a very malleable set of ideas, um, which as I, as you point out, and as I say in the book, um, allows for a really broad spectrum of people to engage with eugenics and eugenic theory, um, and feel like they are doing right by it. You know, they feel like they understand it just as much as anyone else. And I mean, that's arguably true in a lot of cases. Um, so that's, I think that's, irrespective of where you are. That's true in Chile. That's true in England. That's uh, true in the United States. Uh, People at this period of time um, think they know quite a bit um, when in reality they are working off very partial information um, and making kinds of an incredible amount of uh, theoretical presumptions uh, that, of course, we come to see don't really work, but at the time um, are no kind of less, how would I put it, no less reasonable than anything else in many ways. Um, so that, I think, is just kind of the landscape in which then you can place developments in Chile into, um, because that remains true in Chile as well. Um, and then kind of it al- it also, and again, this is part of, you know, why you can write a book about one place and it can be useful for somebody studying a different place. Um, eugenics, too, is not only a transnational kind of movement, uh, it is also uniquely localized um, and in particularly in the Latin American case, eugenics is very much bound by the borders of each nation and what they aim to do. Um, like I said, in the Chilean case, the purpose of eugenics that most people are talking about is further refining the racial homogeneity that characterized that place, or at least they believed it characterized the place. Um, If you look at what eugenicists 
in Brazil or Peru uh, or Argentina are discussing, they are uniquely different strands of kind of a similar stream of thought based on what people presume to be true about the populations of those nations. Um, And so, you know, I think that to me is what is so fascinating about this and why it merits study is, you know, the, the actual very real intellectual fluidity of these ideas. Um, Meanwhile, the way people are using them is extremely uh, kind of um, circumscribed and concrete. They think they know precisely what they're doing. Um, But all it takes is just kind of to take one step back and see, well, they're really sure of these kind of claims they're making, but I don't know how anyone could be. Um, And so that's, I think, what I wanted to try and uncover here, and in particular to, um, I guess, move away from the idea that... um, well, one, that Latin Americans simply just don't science good. (laughs) Um, uh, And two, uh, that like, how would I put it? That eugenics is a pseudoscience and therefore no wonder like anybody kind of thought they could do it. Um, It's, it was truly something that, appealed to people at a fundamental level and was treated as very serious business. And so um, despite that seriousness, there was a a really fundamental lack of clarity because there was just not enough information that, I mean, that time, it was only going to, time was the only thing that was going to fix that. so again, I guess it's just about trying to be respectful of the people and the intellectuals and the ideas of that particular moment. I guess you could kind of think of it think of it as trying to capture this snapshot of a moment and really take it as seriously as possible. Um without just being like, well, everyone kind of ruined this and no one understood anything. Yeah, um, that you were uh, speaking a, a moment ago about just how important the national or local context is. And um, in your book, you sort of get um, at how important um, nationalism or this kind of blend of um, Catholic and eugenic ideas were in shaping the Raza Chilena, was what, which was... Um, clearly um, framed in terms of uh, national identity in, in relation to Chile, right? Um, especially you mentioned the work of Nicolás Palacios, who who um, wrote uh, La Raza Chilena. But um, something that I wanted to bring up, uh, I remember being um, in, surprised how in, in the final parts of your book, you, you talk about um, Allende and Pinochet, but uh, I, I bring that up to kind of speak a little more to what you were mentioning that this idea that um, racial thought is not as uh, prominent in Latin America as in other places. Um, this is not the case, right? And uh, that's sort of what, what you talk about. And I wonder if you could tell us a little more about how you, you see that happening here and even 
in in some instances you connected to more contemporary historical development. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, so one of the things that you start to see when you do read into kind of history of race and ethnicity. Um, or not even just history, just race and ethnicity in Latin America, if you want to do any research on that, um, either in the historical, in any historical period, or um, in the in contemporary studies, like if you're doing Latin American cultural studies, a kind of general truism that you'll run across is that the way um, race is conceptualized at its fundamental level is different in Latin America. And whether this is said explicitly or not, quite often the implication is that the contrast is with the United States in particular. Um, In other words, that race uh, is, I mean, it's essential in both regions, but the line in the sand around whiteness in North America is incredibly clear and defined. And then all kind of subsequent ideas about race come from that initial uh, distinction. In the Latin American case, uh, the idea of race, and by that I mean like just like what is it and who has it and who cares? Um, the idea of race is very much bound up in the notion of blending, right? Mestizaje, mestizaje, um, metisage. Like all throughout uh, Latin America, there, there are all these words to capture that. And so there, in a sense, there is no line between white and everybody else. And from that grows all other kinds of sets of ideas about identity or nationalism or whatever. But, you know, I think that distinction between North America and the rest of the Americas is more kind of, it's true and it's not true, I suppose. Um, Because it, Like, the fact remains that being white throughout the Americas gives you privilege that other people simply do not have. You can't deny that being true. So clearly, whiteness absolutely matters in all of these contexts, even if there is a certain kind of acceptance or pragmatism around racial mixing. So that, to me, is actually kind of the the more... um, meaningful discussion to have. And that's what I talk about in this book, which is if then in the Latin American context, the issues surrounding racial identity emerge from racial mixing, that helps us to understand in turn how nationalism functions in these places. Because, um, you know, or at least in the 20th century, it's different in the 19th century, but in the 20th century, um, the nationalism that starts to emerge within different Latin American nations is very much bound up in racial and ethnic identity, much as nationalism is everywhere in the world at the same time. And I would say that's because of the rise of the importance of eugenics, broadly speaking. 
uh, all over the Americas, but all over the world. When we hit the 20th century, we start to see a lot of narratives about these are our people. This is how we know they are ours because they have this heritage, because they have this physical appearance, because if you cross the border, People will have a different physical appearance. People will have a different heritage. People will have a different language, perhaps. Um, and so that is what you start to see coming to fruition um, in the first half of the 20th century throughout Latin America, um, that you should really be able to, and and it does start happening before that, but I think it kind of meet, comes to its full maturation across this period where, again, there's this presumption that like, um, if I'm a Chilean, I should absolutely know the difference um, between myself and a Bolivian. That should be easy. Between myself and an Argentinian, obviously. Between myself and a Brazilian. Between myself and a Colombian. Between myself and a Mexican. And all, and not only should I know that difference, but I also recognize that all of those other countries I just mentioned are also different from each other. And the reason that they're different is because their history and legacy of racial mixture is different and unique to themselves, right? Um, each one has their own history of interaction um, with European colonization and um, kind of various uh, economic uh, extraction models that d facilitated different kinds of contact between different groups of people. Um, and so that is why now as we get into the 20th century, we have these distinctions and why it's so important for us um, to kind of be proud of our heritage and our thing. I mean, in the Chilean case, uh, not only are most of the eugenicists arguing that, um, you know, La Raza Chilena is a unique homogenous race and in and of itself, that's cool. Um, they're also saying in the world, we are a unique version of humanity that other groups and other people should want to study and should take seriously because where else in the world do you have this predominantly white mestizo thing, you know? Um, uh, and, and in fact, by the time we get to the 1930s and beyond, we start to see many Latin American, um, like academics and intellectuals um, and political leaders start to take this message of how they are good at race mixing um, out into the world at large. Um, like, for example, a really obvious but always useful example is when you think about uh, racial democracy in Brazil, right? Um Gilberto Freire is the person who coins the term and kind of comes up with the general idea. But in fact, that idea predated him as well. Um, but the idea that there is something unique to Latin Americans that facilitates a really good um, racial mixture process. Um, Chileans say this too, because they say, look at how thorough our racial mixture was. Um, we really kind of bled out all of the indigenous, the bad indigenous qualities that we don't want here. We got rid of those. Um, and so shouldn't what we did, shouldn't we be like sending out that message to the world? Don't other countries want to know 
how to do this. Um, and so that to me, I think is really an intriguing kind of way to think about uh, if there is a difference, which again, I, I, the di- difference is minimal at best between uh, Latin America and North America. It, it, it lies in this kind of belief that Latin Americans have kind of a special talent at racial mixing, which in turn, uh, the argument often goes, means that they are not racist and it has somehow done away with any possibility of racial conflict. Um, the argument there being that if you cannot claim pure whiteness, then you cannot claim any of the corresponding privileges or supremacy that goes with pure whiteness. Um, and I guess what one of the things I wanted to show in this book is that it doesn't matter about the purity of the whiteness. What matters is the concept and the existence of people who, who feel they can access that identity. Um, and so that's, you know, really how this all functions and certainly absolutely contributes to kind of nationalist ideas about who is the better nation, who is the stronger nation, you know, um, and, and it has a real meaningful impact in how, uh, Latin American nations interact with each other for sure. Yeah, I find it um, absolutely interesting and intriguing, especially um, the way you you put it in your book that even this sort of embrace of mestizaje and racial mixing at the same time is not necessarily um, inclusive, but also has just kind of racist undertones in it. Um, You um, call it an invisibilization of um, other racial categories by just trying to homogenize it, right? So I find that um, absolutely um, fascinating. Yeah. Cause I mean, and again, this is, um, a story that is told in most Latin American countries. I'm just talking about the Chilean one. Um, but typically if you look at these stories of like, what are our founding peoples who are the, um, contributors to the mixed race legacy that we are all inheritors of now? Um, typically it's only one indigenous group that is identified as the kind of parent indigenous group for the entire nation. Um, and then of course there's some category of Europeans who is the other parent of the nation. Um, typically anybody of African descent is not characterized as a parent of the nation. Um, and that's even kind of true in Brazil, which is intriguing. Um, and so there's like kind of this look back to the colonial past as a starting point um, and then a selection process about precisely who you're going to say were the important kind of progenitors and contributors to your to your now present contemporary national identity. Um, and so, yes, well, on the one hand, you would think, well, they're celebrating this indigenous heritage. I guess that seems good. Um, or it certainly looks progressive, you know, when somebody's celebrating Lautaro in 1917. I mean, that seems certainly very progressive uh, from the vantage point of 2022, maybe. Um, but then you have to think about like, well, what precisely, a, who, what is being celebrated? Who does this represent? Who's telling these stories? And um, 
you know, in the case of Chile, the group that's identified is the, well, and that's the other thing. They, they certainly never say Mapuche. <laughs> that's not the word that's ever used. Uh, they've even come up with a whole other term, which is Araucanians. Um, and so, I mean, to me, that seems quite obvious then that we are not celebrating <laughs> indigeneity in its kind of richest sense. We're talking about a very specific and select kind of version of the past. And what really drives it home in the case of the Chilean story about this, and this is another uh, Palacios claim, um, he doesn't even say broadly that these are Europeans who came to Chile. He doesn't even say that they're Spanish because he actually thinks the Spanish are terrible. Um, he's, he's gone through a whole thing where, in fact, um, there's this kind of subset of people of Germanic heritage who ended up in the Iberian Peninsula, who then in turn came to Chile, <laughs> you know, um, which is an incredible amount of, uh, I don't even know how to describe it, kind of selective reading of the past uh, to come up with a story that you feel comfortable with. Um, but even that, I mean, so that's the thing is like, at first when I read that, I was like, this guy is clearly nuts. Um, I don't know what he's thinking. But then I started looking around and in fact, um, there was so much uh, kind of anti-Latin uh, feeling in the 20th, early 20th century, that there was quite a lot of writing in, um, you know, I guess, I'd, and I know the term Latin is problematic in its own ways, but in Latin cultures or in countries identified as such, um, all throughout the Iberian Peninsula, uh, Italy, uh, throughout uh, Central and South America and the Caribbean as well, there's all this writing about how, in fact, um, there was a, a strange Germanic strand in Latin culture that, um, how do I want to say this? Like this all truly to figure this out is quite something, but basically the argument was that when, uh, Rome was sacked by the various Germanic tribes, um, that then this kind of synergy between Germanic and Latin culture, it came to exist. And that that saved Latin peoples from some of the worst aspects of their own kind of racial heritage. You can believe that or not, but that, I mean, this, at, you know, I'll just say that's that was a surprisingly widespread belief. Um which then, you know, then we come to Chile and there's this also kind of additional stuff that I think is really interesting because um, even now you can go, um, I think it's Puerto Montt, uh, but there are whole like German looking towns in southern Chile. And the reason that those are there is because people really believed this kind of supposed Germanic connection uh, between Chileans and Austrians and Germans. And they then created a special kind of immigration program that facilitated the arrival of German and Austrian migrants to Southern Chile, um, which had even another level of weird 
um, kind of racial improvement built upon it because Southern Chile is where the vast majority of Mapuche people were. And so there was a feeling like on the one hand, we can get this kind of connection to our ancestry by getting Germanic peoples to come to Chile. On top of it, they can they can do the work of what the term that often gets used as pacifying the Mapuche. Um, and then on top of that, it's like, oh, and also Germanic people like the cold weather. And that's what Southern Chile is, is cold, oh. cold, cold. So we well, can do all of this at once. <laughs> and, so many different intersections that they find. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. And so, I mean, stuff like that is just, I mean, it's the reason why you do books like this because you run across this strange thing. And at first you think it's just this one person who's kind of eclectic or eccentric or something. And then you start looking around and then you're like, oh no, this was not some strange idea this person came up with on their own. There was actually a, a tradition of this and and then it becomes kind of, uh, yeah, like these truisms or kind of like, oh, it's always been this way and this is how we do things. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, all of that, uh, to me is, I guess, the point of doing this stuff is so you can better understand how people actually think that this works. Um, and I guess as well, kind of um, to get back to the original point, how inclusivity and exclusivity exist like in tandem, right? Like we can celebrate diversity while still simultaneously um, kind of systematically and systemically not supporting that in reality. Yeah, um, this is an absolutely fascinating history and just the intersections between these two seemingly um, just discrete um, and electro frameworks, uh, to use your your phrase, um, it's just fascinating. So thank you uh, so much for for talking about that. And uh, as a sort of a a final um, question that we've um, taken, um, a lot, a lot of your time um, so far. So, if you um, wouldn't mind um, talking about any uh, projects that that you may be uh, working on or are planning to to work on in the future, whether related to um, these topics, um, I, I, we would love to hear about that. Sure. Um, yeah, that's a good question. The pandemic kind of put a a cramp in anything I was hoping to do for a while. Um, so I'm doing a couple articles that are um, still connected to this research in some ways. I'm in the process of finishing up and preparing to submit an article about um, Chilean martial strength, which is to say military strength at the turn of the, or really end of the 19th century. Um, as an opportunity to reflect on Chile's um, racial superiority and white identity relative to Peru and Bolivia. Um, so that article is uh, specifically about this war memorial in downtown Santiago to the Roto Chileno is what it's called. Um, and so that's a bit of a departure for me because it has a bit more to do with like visual culture um, and art history. So that's one of the things I'm looking and it's an earlier time period that I'm normally accustomed to. So that's one thing I'm doing. And then I'm trying to think, uh, put together an article about uh, 
broadly speaking, Chilean healthcare uh, in the first half of the 20th century um, that I'm only just starting to think about because I was asked to contribute an article to a special issue about Latin American healthcare um, in the modern era. So I need to think a bit about what I want to say about that. Um, though I, I have a feeling it will be, again, kind of about the interconnections between um, race and gender in the context of healthcare. Um, and then more kind of like longer term projects. Uh, I've really been wanting for a while, like because the pandemic sort of changed my plans for what I hoped to do, uh, I started thinking about um, doing a project based on published materials or like um, media that I could access digitally. And so I have the hope that I might uh, start doing a longer term project. And I'm not sure if it would be like a few different articles or build into an entire book, but about um, science fiction in Latin America and its connections. Yeah, uh, its connections, again, like everything I do, I does I kind of circle back to race and ethnicity because um, I really do think uh, there needs to be more work, not only on white identity kind of making and what it is in Latin America, but also um, how white supremacy functions in Latin America. Um, so, yeah, so I have a vision of what I would like to see out of this uh, Latin American science fiction thing, um, but I haven't yet actually uh, gotten any, like I've done some secondary reading, but I need to find some primary sources. Um, but that would be a more comparative project where I'd be looking at a few different countries, um, precisely to get at what I mentioned in this interview, which is that, um, because racial mixing informs national identity so much, um, I would expect to see kind of different, uh, visions of the future, in different countries, like what do we expect the future of Brazil is going to be, or the future of Chile, or the future of Argentina or Mexico, um, and so, so we'll see about that. I really hope I can <laughs> find the time to do it because it feels like it might be just a little bit a more fun way to deal with a serious topic that I, like I've done the, the serious way of doing a serious topic and I would like to maybe just watch some old movies or read some old books. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. That sounds um, fascinating. Sounds like a great um, project. So um, I would like to uh, thank you so much for, for being on the show today. I really enjoyed um, both reading your book and talking to you about it. So thank you. Well, thank you, Claudia, and thank you for inviting me.